630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. Now, Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on the voice of your Oilers and Eskimos. 630 Chad. Toronto Blue Jays out to a 1-0 lead in Colorado early, top of the second inning. Reed Wilkins with you inside sports on 630 Chet. Thank you so much for tuning in. And uh, I got to tell you, got some sad news earlier today off the top of the show. And uh, this this one's tough. If, if you've listened to inside sports, if you've listened to Oilers Now or, or some of our post-game shows, Overtime Open Line, that Rob and I do together, you will know the voice, you will know the name, Tom. Caller, 96 years of age. He's passed away. And what a, a pleasure it was to get to know this man a little bit. Uh, I first talked to him. He started calling when I was producing Oilers Now, I guess shortly after uh, it debuted on 630 Chet about five, six years ago, because I think Tom was 91 or 92 at the time. Loyal Oilers fan, loyal Edmontonian, loved the Oilers and the Eskimos, was a huge Nail Yakupov fan. I, I would always hope Yakupov would have a good game so Tom would enjoy watching. And it was a pleasure for me. Got to know Tom a little bit. We actually had Tom as a guest on Inside Sports last year. And, I mean, he used to referee games that the Edmonton grads played. I mean, he's been an Edmontonian for a long time and knew a lot about this city's history and was and had some interesting sports stories himself. We are going to replay that interview with Tom tomorrow night. Tom McLaughlin is his name. And we're going to bring in Bob Stoffer from Oilers now. Bob, and we we always loved when he called. What, what, a, what a great guy. Just a lot of knowledge and a lot of energy. And uh, it's sad that he's gone, but what a pleasure we got to got to know him a little bit. Well, the thing I liked about Tom is he may have been, uh, you know, in his 90s, but he was young at heart. And he uh, was also a man that had, you know, great experience but had tremendous uh, empathy and uh, the ability to to change. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, I just look at Yakupov and the patience that he had with Neil. Uh, he was clearly uh, uh, not from the, uh, you know, break him down and build him up school in terms of developing players. And it was really refreshing, to, you know, and I loved it when he called him. I and mean, I didn't always agree with him. Uh, that's the nature of, uh, you know, sports talk radio, good sports talk radios. There's a little bit of conflict. And uh, I think that uh, uh, line four and heaven just got themselves a heck of a call. Yeah, no kidding. We're, we're, we're going to miss Tom. And like I said, we, we had him as a guest on the show, and he told some great stories. We'll we'll play that, that whole thing uh, tomorrow night. And we do appreciate his family reached out to both you and me uh, to, to, to let us know, and certainly our condolences to his family yeah. and, and everybody that knew him. Bob, thanks for making time for me tonight, because I know sure. uh, we were both busy, and we got to sit by each other for uh, eight or nine hours over the weekend. So thanks for... Still being willing to be on air with me. Uh, the draft was well, was a lot of fun. We had to pick our jaws up uh, off the floor a, a few times, but uh, I, I, you know, I, I have a lot of hope about what the Oilers did. I kind of focused on those first three picks in uh, in the first hour. Pulleyarvi could very well play right away. Benson, you know he's going to work his butt off to try to be an Edmonton Oiler. And Nima Linen's an interesting prospect that some people thought might even sneak into the first round. Well, I think the Oilers had an excellent draft. They also had a very fortuitous draft. They were unlucky in the lottery, but uh, things worked out for them. And uh, 
Uh, well, you know, I'd like the rationale from Columbus's perspective. You know, for the fans that say, well, they wanted the center in Dubois, he played center for half a season. Now, he is a physical specimen. I don't know if he has anywhere near the same high octane uh, offensive ability as Jesse Pugliarvi. So the Oilers lucked out. And, you know, Peter Shirelli was really disappointed when the Oilers lost in the lottery, dropped two spots, because I think his hope is he'd get one of the two fins. He ultimately got one of the two fins. And we'll never know, Reed, even though we might know, we'll never know what the Oilers were going to do if the Blue Jackets had taken uh, Pugliarvi at three. But I will tell you this. The Oilers were not taking Dubois. So was it going to be Kachuk? Was it going to be Sergeyev? We'll never know. But based on positional need, you can make an argument Edmonton should have been looking at uh, Sergeyev. Nonetheless, the Oilers, they get the uh, stud right winger. A little bit of a lower body issue for him uh, that he's going to have to rehab. We'll see how that affects any potential. Uh, you know, he may not skate as an example next week at development camp. That's a possibility. I'm not sure where that's at but it's probably going to slow just how quickly he can ascend his way into the lineup. As for Benson, you saw him during the lockout year. I saw him seven times during that lockout year. He's going to find a way. He's had no luck whatsoever in the last calendar year. I'd argue he hasn't had any luck since he's been drafted by Vancouver. That is an organization that has struggled for years. Uh, The owner there has meddled a bit, uh, kind of taken the the power a, a bit away from Scott Bonner. That's why Scott Bonner left to, to go work with Jerry Johansson. And we're going to come back to Scott Bonner at, during a later point of this conversation on Milan Lucic. Uh, but Benson went into a difficult situation for head coaches in the last two years. I mean, that's a joke. My prediction is he'll significantly turn around and he will prove to be a better pro player than either Brett Howden or Sam Steele. I don't know a lot about Milan other than the fact that uh, he played on a, a bad team, but he can really skate. And uh, right now is a great run for Finns this year. I like what the Oilers did with the other two picks in the third round. And beyond that, I have no clue. Right. <laughs> I can't, nor do you, right? So, no, we're Googling so, guys on the fly after round four pretty much. So. But, but I will say that I, I have a lot more confidence uh, and had a lot more confidence leaving Buffalo than back in 2014 where I was confused by what the Oilers were doing with the amount of 19 and 20-year-olds they drafted that year. Uh, this year, I got it. I got the approach, and I like it, and I like where they're headed. Uh, I'm going to just roll into a couple of texts that we got uh, just during the news break, Bob. This texter says, do you think the Oilers should have – this is an interesting one. Do you think the Oilers should have taken a chance on Sean Day instead of Nima Linen? I like the idea of his huge size. He seemed to put up decent numbers, and him getting exceptional player status shows – that he has a higher ceiling. Well, Day, uh, he isn't taller, but he's certainly thicker, 6'2", around 225, 230. I mean, Bob, his numbers weren't out of this world. 22 points in, in 57 games. He did wind up going 81st overall to the Rangers. Yeah, I, I'm not sure that the passion's there for Sean Day. If it gets locked in, the Rangers got a steal. But, you know, uh, the Day family has a lot of money, and Sean's brother has a lot of problems right now. He's in prison, so... Uh, he's had a lot to think about and has completely plummeted as a uh, as a prospect. He could get it turned right, but you can't go wrong with a six foot five defenseman that could skate by Nima Linen. And don't get me wrong, Day can skate too. He's got more of a Drew Doughty type of stride, but uh, I think that the Oilers are, are really comfortable with the guy they took. All right, I'll bang out a couple more texts here. Jeremy says, "Can Puliyarvi go to Bakersfield uh, next season because he wasn't playing in the Canadian Hockey League?" Yes, because he was playing pro in Europe. Right. 
And uh, I'm just going to check the contract status here, Bob. This is this is a good one. It's from Vern Fiddler's uncle Jamie. What do you think about Vern Fiddler coming home to Edmonton from Dallas? He'd be a good role model model on the Oilers. Do you think he's going to come home, Bob? I don't know. I think the Oilers have a already have a player in that role uh, in Mark Letestu, who's a little younger too. I don't I don't know if Vern would would land here. Right now, the Oilers need to save the money they've got. Uh, you know, there were a couple players today that uh, part of the problem I have with Fiddler is his left shot. I like Vern as a player. I like him as a guy. Uh, but he is a left uh, center. I think he was around 52% this past year, roughly in the same range uh, as uh, as Latestu was. But Latestu is a right shot. I think Vern was probably a little bit better five on five than Latestu was. But Latestu was fairly uh, efficient on the power play this year. Uh, yeah, Fiddler had a significantly better season five on five. I do think that Ladder needs to be significantly pushed. Uh, I wouldn't mind taking a swing on a guy like Neil, a right-handed center. 21 years old at skate, 22, I guess now. Uh, but I'm not sure. I, you know, if I, it, it's funny because Peary became available today, and so did Brett uh, Conley. But the Oilers are shooting for bigger fish because they got to settle the score on defense and potentially, you know, looking at Lucci up front as well. So I think that Fiddler is going to find himself uh, being a guy that uh, would not be a priority signing. You know, he'd be a guy that gets in the mix somewhere between July, uh, July 5th. July 4th is a Monday, so, so I don't know how busy it'll be 3rd and 4th, but maybe July 5th to July 12th. Fiddler might see some action then. Bob Stoffer joining us inside sports on 630 Chet. Hall of Fame class, Bob. Uh, former Oilers coach Pat Quinn, obviously a couple significant victories as the coach of Canadian teams, gets in. Goaltender Rogie Vashon, who I remember as a Los Angeles King, but I think you might have, you're a little older than me, so you might have other memories of him. Sergei Makarov gets in, and there he is, Bob, Eric Lindros. We, 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 we talk about him uh, every year. He finally gets in. Look, the thing about Lindros for me, Bob, I understood the arguments against him, and I always kind of hemmed and hawed, and then the more I thought about it, you know, I understand he didn't play as long as other guys, and there are still some people that hold some of the off-ice and the draft not going to Quebec stuff against him. But if you're considered the best player in the game for as long as he was, and that was a three-, four-year period, you know, you should be getting into the hall. Yeah, he was uh, definitely the best player in the game in the late 1990s. His numbers uh, compare quite favorably to Pavel Bure and Cam Ely, both who had their uh, you know, careers shortened. As for the stuff with Quebec City, consider who he got engaged in that battle with and who the family was concerned about, Marcelo Bou. I mean, Marcelo Bou double-dealed Lindros to two different NHL franchisers. There's long been rumors that Quebec City uh, specifically tried uh, to alter bonuses at that time that were in place for players. Uh, Marcelo Bou sold the Nordiques uh, uh, to, you know, moved into Colorado ownership. And then Marcelo Blue got some hot water when he was a member of uh, the Olympic Committee. So, um, you know, he, he, there's two sides to every story. And I'd heard sides dating back to 1990, 1991 and Marcelo Blue. So, interesting stuff. I've always been a lot more liberal on the ice, uh, off-ice stuff with uh, Lindros because, frankly, we just don't know. I know what I saw on ice, and what I saw on ice was a Hall of Famer. Well, you're going to have to help me here, Bob. Was Rogi Vashon ever one of the top three, five goalies in the NHL? Yeah. He was? Okay, I don't yeah. I don't remember. He won, three, he won, no, he, he won three Stanley Cups with the Montreal Canadiens. So he preceded Ken Dryden. Was he? Okay. Or, yeah, that oh, that was before I was born. Okay. Yeah, they had they had a, you know, the Canadians won it, or the Leafs 
won it in 67 and 68, and then the, or sorry, in 67, and then Rogie was the goalie. And, uh, he would have been the goalie in 68 and 69. Well, he was Montreal. still pretty young then, okay. Yeah, oh, just yeah. looking and, up. And then he, you know, I mean, I think Rogie may have gotten a bit of a break from some of the older guys in the committee just because he was in management for a while. But I always, you know, just back to Lindros. I mean, I remember hearing uh, Gregory, uh, Jim Gregory, talking about character. You know, the character of Dick Duff when Glenn Anderson didn't get in. And I'm like, well, how in the hell would we know that what the character is of Dick Duff? That was the 1950s. And, you know, Dick Duff was a fine player, but was he even in the top 40, you know, 25 players in the NHL at the time? I'm not sure he was. So I always sort of shake my head on that stuff because it's, it's when you have older people making decisions on younger. This again, back to Tom. That's what I liked about Tom. He had a lot of patience and I, and I believed in the way Yakupov should have been treated. And here you you had the exact opposite scenario where you had guys making judgments on Glenn Anderson that they didn't know based on some reputation. Glenn wasn't overly, uh, didn't go out of his way to kiss the butts of the media types either, right? That didn't help Glenn Anderson. Eric Lindros could be a tad surly at times because he kind of got off on, in the eyes of somehow dare you challenge the authority. And the other thing that happened to Lindros was the concussions. We didn't understand the severity of concussions when he started getting hurt in the late 90s and the early 2000s. So it is... Uh, Time has, uh, you know, sort of healed some of these challenges for Lindros goodies in there. And as for Vashon, I guess he belongs in too. Hey, Bob, you always belong on this show, buddy. I'll see you here tomorrow. Oh, are we going to just very quickly, just on Lucic? I got the oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. You know, Jerry Johansson's his agent. Uh, he's got Scott Bonner in town working for him. That was Glenn's uh, general manager in Vancouver. I think Edmonton's in the two-hole there. I think it's, you know, Anaheim's probably in the best spot. But I do think the Oilers are actually in a better spot than Vancouver. And it, it could be a legitimate possibility that Milan ends up here in Edmonton. Okay. Yeah, well, and we'll be on Friday from uh, starting at 11 a.m. to cover free agency. So I look forward to doing that with you, Bob. All Thanks, right, man. Have a great show tonight, man. See you. That is Bob Stoffer, host of Oilers Now, noon to 2 every day right here on 630 Chet. Love having Bob on the show. I believe uh, Chris from Phoenix is going to make one of his regular appearances on the open line. You can, too. 780-496-0063. Back in a couple. You're listening to 630 Ched Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Well, thanks for tuning in tonight. Yeah, so Canada Day. Going to be a fun one. For me, this is how Canada Day shakes down. Matthew Panashik on the other side of the window. By the way, good to see you, buddy. I made it back from Buffalo. Yes. That's good. Yes, I did. You're just like, yeah. That's good Thanks news. for stating the obvious, Wilkins. <laughs> I don't think you want to stay in Buffalo, buddy. I, I, yeah, I, I, I'm not one to run down other cities. I mean, it's... it's. Uh, I, I, was, I, I spent some time... I did not stay downtown. I stayed a couple miles away from the rink. I was in an area of Buffalo that looked like it has had its challenges recently, and I don't feel like I'm piling on because I talked to people who live there who uh, said, you know, they, I, I was specifically told by more than one person, do not go east of where you're staying. They said go west. I, I, I discovered a street that I wasn't uh, far from called Allen Street, which would be somewhat white avish. Uh, I mean, a scaled-down version, but I had a couple good meals there. Found a place to uh, grab a pint after the draft one night. Uh, I went on a couple runs in Buffalo. 
And so that was one way to see a little bit more of the city. There are some grand old houses there, I can tell you that. Massive houses, massive, massive properties, like in the city, not far from downtown. And some big old properties that clearly haven't been treated as grandly over the years. But I got to tell you, they love their Sabres in Buffalo. They love their Bills. The Buffalo Bandits lacrosse team is uh, pretty big as well. I'm, I'm glad I got to see Buffalo. And look, you, you explore any city. Every city has its ups and downs, its nice areas, its uh, areas that are a little more challenged. And, and Buffalo is no different. Chris from Phoenix. I love you, buddy. Go ahead. <laughs> I love you too, brother. Hey, the best part of Buffalo is uh, Niagara Falls, so kind of like the best part of Detroit is uh, my hometown of Windsor, Ontario. Um, nice casino. Uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty. Other than there's other establishments that uh, many people like to frequent in Windsor. <laughs> um, what's it called? Uh, the best part. Before I get to my hockey talk, the best part of uh, Euro 2016 is just seeing all these tweets on these lovely ladies that uh, are fans. That's to me. That's about it. <laughs> Okay. Uh, as far as uh, like watching, watching like thirty guys run up and down the field for like three hours and get like two shots off, it's, it's, it's just boring to me. Um, and then uh, my my condolences to Tom's family. Uh, on a side note, I hope that I'm not ninety six years old and still calling in, and the Oilers are still bad. Well, no kidding. Um, I will. I will. I probably won't make it to ninety six because you'll you'll see me hanging somewhere. Uh, Anyway, uh, as far as the Lutz stock, I, I think that the Oilers are, are a little higher up uh, than Anaheim, um, just because I think we uh, they're more of a budget team than we are. Uh, the only real uh, advantage that they have, obviously, is, uh, is Southern California, which they always have the advantage of having uh, the nice weather, like uh, 363 days of the year or whatever it is. But I, I can, unless he's willing to wait to see if they can free up some cap room, I see Milan probably signing uh, right away July 1st if there isn't already some sort of deal in place. And then uh, I, I was I was happy with uh, with the draft. I got to uh, listen to you guys uh, uh, for a couple hours and uh, was excited to, to see Pugliari drop. Uh, I can't believe that Columbus actually did that, but then again, I can't really uh, say anything negative about Columbus because we really haven't been that good either, so... Uh, as far as all the other picks, to me, all that is is I don't get excited for draft picks outside of the top ten because to me, a lot of those guys don't don't make it for a little while, and especially when you're getting to the to the third round. To me, all that really is is just currency. Uh, whether or not those guys make it, we'll probably see uh, two to three years down the line on some of those guys. Yeah, or more. AHL. Yeah, or more or for more, sure. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that's all I have. I'm, I'm excited. Hopefully, we uh, we have a couple of signings here and. Uh, Chris, I will talk to you soon. Chris from Phoenix, check it in. Always good to hear from him. 780-496-0063. By the way, officially announced today, George Strombolopoulos will not be back hosting Hockey Night in Canada. Ron McLean will host the early games. David Amber will host the late games. The Oilers will play in a few of those on Saturday night. Scott Moore is the president of Sportsnet and its NHL properties admitted today that having Strombo in there was a change not embraced by NHL fans. Two years ago, we made uh, some changes to Hockey Night in Canada. Um, we were enthusiastic about the changes, but at the end of the day, they did not resonate with hardcore hockey fans. Ron is a tremendous host, and bringing him uh, back to the program along with David Amber, I think, will resonate with those fans. 
And McLean is praising Strombolopoulos for his professionalism. George, for two years, uh, probably put up with a lot. And uh, he just kept coming and being a great colleague and swinging. All right. So that's the news there. McLean is back. Uh, you know, as someone in broadcasting, I do feel for Strombolopoulos. I know a lot of you didn't like him. That comes with the territory. We didn't get into the business. You accept that. But I'm sure to some degree that was his dream job, and he doesn't get to continue doing it. So, hey, I got a feel for the guy there. But I understand the audience reaction. Coming up to the 7.30 news, I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I'm going to tell you exactly what happened on that play that allowed Ottawa to kick a tying field goal. And our Eskimo analyst, Blake Dermott, coming up too. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Edmonton Sports Leader, 630 Chad. Thanks for tuning in tonight, Inside Sports. Blue Jays still up 1-0 on Colorado, 1-0 that game uh, in the top of the fourth inning in Denver. Eskimos on a bye. The next game is next Friday, July 8th. Their opponent will come from the province of Saskatchewan. Hey, you know what's cool, Matthew? We got six more years of Eskimos football right here on 630 Chet. That was announced on Saturday. Really proud that we're keeping that relationship going and we can bring the games to you for another six seasons. Morley Scott and Dave Campbell in the broadcast booth. Blake Dermott is uh, our in-game analyst. He's going to join me in about 12 minutes. Brendan Ulrich is our sideline reporter. Um, Eskimos on a bye. Uh, no Eskimo show, by the way, tonight. You're stuck with me until 9 o'clock. Morley will be back with the Eskimo show next Monday from 8 to 9. Got to say, bummer of a game. I, let me rephrase that. Entertaining game, bummer of a, a bummer of result because the Eskimos lost. Certainly extremely entertaining. Uh, some wild play. What The Eskimos got a touchdown on a blocked punt. Andrew Harris came in, and he's going to play again for Ottawa this week when they play Montreal on Thursday. Henry Burris on the one-game injured list with a hand injury. Uh, Trevor Harris came in, looked great. I thought John White looked great for the Eskimos. Darrell Walker still able to make some plays. And, uh, I, I mean, we'll talk about the circumstances leading up to the field goal by by uh, Chris Milo at the end of the game, but 55 yards. you got to give the guy credit whether you were happy or not with the, the lead-up to that play. The Eskimos got some work to do on defense. I want to talk about a couple things here specifically. There's the snap. Riley will drop back. He throws, and is it incomplete? Incomplete, and Ottawa will win it. I thought Riley I thought had he, room. He had, he had room, room to, to get the first down for sure, yep. but elected to throw, and it goes incomplete. All right. So I know as soon as that happened, there was a lot of why didn't Riley run on that play. First of all, David Morley asked him right after the game, did you think about running? No, honestly, climbed the pocket, and, uh, you know, the first read was Darius on the out route, and the second read was Nate, and, uh, you know, he had his guy beat, and he was coming across the field. It was a little bit of an awkward throw that I need to make, and, uh, you know, if I hit him in stride, we got a big play on our hands rather than taking it and running it myself. So, um, you know, I just got to make a better throw, and then there's there's no debate about that. But, um, uh, again, you know, there were so many opportunities in that game. We shouldn't have been playing in overtime. We we should have sealed that game well before that. Well, that's that's a good point. I mean, this offense can't... They, they scored, I guess technically they scored 30 points because 
there was the block punt for the touchdown, which should be enough to win. But this offense can't continually take a quarter and a half to get into the game. To, to me, that's that's continually frustrating. And it was like that last year, that they put themselves in a position to often play catch-up or kind of dawdle around and then pull things out in the second half. In terms of, of the criticism of Riley on that play, and, and if you listen to the show, you know that, that I think highly of Mike Riley. Uh, I think they got a good quarterback. I think they got a competitive guy. I don't think they got a perfect guy. I mean, Mike Riley is prone to... You know, times where he makes a bad throw, he said there he didn't feel he made a good throw to Kuhorn. What I like about Riley is the mistakes don't linger. He's able to move on for them. He's able to recover. He's able to lead. And especially last year, he's able to win. So I don't think the guy is perfect. He has his flaws like anybody else. But I, I, I understand that very likely, the way that play developed, he probably runs for the first down and keeps the drive alive. Doesn't mean the Eskimos tie the game and force another overtime, but it would have meant that they they would have had a chance. But here's why I'm okay with him throwing the ball there. And if you remember last year, one thing that was talked about, Riley worked on when he was scrambling, keeping his eyes downfield, and still thinking pass first. Holding the ball, you know, not tucking it away, still holding it in a way that he could deliver it. And if you go back and watch the Grey Cup, they got, they Jordan Lynch scored on the quarterback sneak with about three minutes left to go up 24-20. They ran a two-point convert. Riley scrambled, probably could have ran it in, kept his eyes downfield, flipped it to Akeem Shavers for the two-point convert. And here's the thing. I, I will live with a quarterback throwing the ball Every once in a while, when maybe he could have run and, and living with those consequences over a quarterback who every time he scrambles, he tucks the ball away and just forgets about the play. I, I, will, I would really live with that. I, I will live with Riley's decision over go back to a Neilon Green who didn't see the first guy take off. Oh, I'm not sure what's happening. Tuck the ball and take off. I will live with that, keeping your eyes downfield, sticking with the play, letting your receivers know you have faith in them, keep running your pattern because I'm going to keep looking for you even if it looks like I can take off. So I I will completely live with what Riley did there. They're going to have to, I mean, the secondary, I don't know, Court Parks was a, a big signing, didn't look great. Pat Watkins, I didn't like the way he finished last season, though then he had a good gray cup and he got banged up and then Gary Peters came on as a sub and was just confused but that happens with a rookie sometimes um and i thought the defense was too passive on that final drive that allowed Ottawa to get down there and kick the long field goal i i really do four man pressure i know we got some good d linemen but most of the time you're not going to get through you're outnumbered and and they were they were too passive and they let Ottawa get you know the 8 10 12 yards and and pick away and get close enough now about the sequence that led up to the Ottawa kick. And football can be a confusing game. You know, the, the timing can be funny. The rules change. In the NFL, the rules change in the last five minutes of the game. In the CFL, they change in the last uh, three minutes of each half. They change the timing. You know, the, the leagues have different play co- clocks that run in different circumstances. All that kind of stuff. Here is what 
here's what happened on that play. Ottawa completes a pass. There's 10 or 11 seconds left. In the CFL, the clock stops, even if the ball is inbounds in the last three minutes. And the, the, ump, the umpire sets the ball, okay? When the ref sees the ball is set, he gives the umpire the signal to back away, and he winds the clock. At that point, there are supposed to be no further substitutions by either team. But in that sort of gray area where the clock's not running, the 22nd clock isn't running, and the umpire is setting the ball, and they're moving the chains if necessary, teams can substitute. Ottawa was kind of sort of starting to do that. But the ref, Andre Pruel, signaled for the ball to be put into play. Okay? And then Ottawa has coaches on the field. they got players on the field. And what the, the two linesmen are supposed to do, the two linesmen that are actually on the line of scrimmage, when the ref signals for the umpire to step away, they're supposed to extend their arms straight out to the side of their body, okay, like putting up a barrier, and that's called the substitution gate, which means no more substitutions, okay? The guy on the Eskimo sideline did that. The guy on the Ottawa sideline did not. And I think he's thinking, oh, they're trying to get players on. Andre's going to wait to blow play in, and Andre blew play in. So what happened was Andre Perul screwed up, quite frankly. He should not have blown play in, okay? He flat out should not have blown play in. It was, and, I, and I've talked to people who would know in the CFL office. It was actually the correct thing happened in that Ottawa was allowed to get the field goal team on the field, but it was handled very sloppily. And that is you had the referee not aware or not checking that the offensive team wanted to substitute. Now another thing to remember is that if Ottawa had not been able to get a playoff... they would not have been penalized any yardage, okay? They would not have been penalized any yardage. In the, again, the rules change. Usually a time count violation is what, Matthew Panaschik? That's a five-yard five, five yard penalty. In the last three minutes of the game, it's loss of down on first or second down. On third down, it's a 10-yard penalty. So they would have gone from first to second down. However, what is interesting, and I, I, I've checked into all this stuff, guys, because it would have been zeros on the game clock, when the time clock hit zero, the Eskimos could have declined the penalty and won the game. Ottawa's last play would have been a non-play. But it should never reach that situation because the referee has to check, is anybody substituting? And he didn't do a sufficient job in checking. So I just want to tell you here, I know it was frustrating, and it was definitely not handled as well as it should have been. But the Eskimos did not get shafted on that play. It did that. It, that is not what happened. And I know that's not what you, you want to hear. And I know you're mad about it. But I've looked into this, into the rule book, and talking to people who handle this at a high level. And let's face it, they should have been able to put the game away before that. So that's what happened. Seven eight zero four nine six zero zero six three. You can text. 6.30, It is 7.43. We'll break down the game a little further with Blake Dermott when we get back.
your home for breaking news and expert opinion. Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chad. I can also tell you that the Edmonton Oil Kings put out their schedule today. Here's the thing. The Oil Kings will have the honor of hosting the first ever hockey game at Rogers Place. That'll be against the Red Deer Rebels Saturday, September 24th at 7. It'll be the Oil Kings' second game of the season. They'll open up the previous night in Red Deer against the Rebels. 36-game home schedule. Other key dates. Don't forget about our 630 Chet Santa's Anonymous 10th Annual Teddy Bear Toss. That'll be December 10th against Kamloops. 12,500 bears thrown on the ice last year. That's awesome. Uh, January 28th. The uh, Pink at the Rink game. Matthew, I'm going to uh, send you an alternate number here for uh, Blake Dermott. Okay. Okay. Uh, The Pink at the Rink game will be January 28th against Prince George. Hockey hooky, the kids like that one. 11.30 a.m. start against the... Oh, hang on. Actually, that is the wrong number I just sent you. The 8 should be a 9. Okay? (laughs) Uh, Live radio. Here we go. (laughs) We are getting Blake Dermott right away. We're just figuring out what phone number he's at. Hockey hooky game for the Oil Kings will be February 15th, 11.30 a.m. start against the Victoria Royals. Of course, go to the Oil Kings uh, website to get that. But yeah, first ever hockey game at Rogers Place. Going to be September 24th, 7 o'clock. All right. Reed Wilkins with you inside Sports on Chat. Have we found Blake? Hello, Blake. I, I, I was here all along. I, we were calling your cell phone. Yeah, no, I'm sitting watching TV <laughs> with the cell phone turned off. So. All right, well, I'll, now I know your home phone number. I'll add it to my contacts. So this won't oh, happen again. Good thing. <laughs> Uh, a couple, th- I mean, a lot to talk about about that game. It felt like uh, one of those everything is happening games. I want to start with the very last play, and I was talking about this at 7.30. Personally, I was fine with Mike Riley still thinking pass, even though it looked like he could run the first down, because I know he worked on that last year, keeping his eyes downfield, and it paid off a lot of times last year. Uh, and I don't mind that, having letting your receivers know just because you see me moving around, I'm still going to look for you. Well, if if it works, it's great. It didn't work, and he had room to run. And uh, and you know, part of his instincts is when when he's got an opportunity to make a play with his legs, he's always done that. And uh, you know, I mean, I understand the the, the process of learning and uh, and improving as a quarterback. And you always want your quarterback to have their eyes downfield, but you don't want him to lose that instinct to be able to make plays. And I'm not saying that he lost any instinct or anything like that, but that's what it just looked like. There was a guy forcing himself to do something that he doesn't naturally do, and that's, you know, make plays with his legs. All right. Yeah, well, all right. I, I, I get it. I, I, I really was fine with, it, with him throwing, though I, I understand people look at that play and say, man, three yards, it was, it was right there for you. But that to me, so much more happened in that game, too. I guess we're kind of working backwards here a little bit, Blake. The Eskimos go up three points. Uh, and then I thought a, a pretty, and I, I know it was still a long field goal for the Red Blacks, but I thought a pretty passive defense to let Harris and the Red Blacks chip away to get a little bit closer. Well, they were playing a previous defense, and, and all the Red Blacks had done all game was throw the underneath stuff throw the delayed cross across the middle clear with the clear with the uh, uh, the receivers upfield get the linebackers to drop off and dump 
and and all they did was just they checked down on, on that last drive. They I think they threw to the running back three out of four plays, and they he was in there blocking. We saw the linebackers drop off. He just released, curled underneath for at about five yards, and then ran for what I think there was three plays that were nine yard gains. And uh, he just they, they ran that play to death because that's exactly what the Eskimos were giving him. Yeah, and it's it, it's tough. Uh, I I think anyway. I mean, I, I know the Eskimos have some good D linemen. It, it's tough to pressure with four guys, and they didn't really bring any extra heat on that last drive either. Well, no, and that's the whole idea. I mean, let, let's face it: the, the the chances of a guy making a fifty-five yard field goal, you're playing the you're playing the odds, and. Uh, they they allowed they knew they were going to give up some some yardage. They uh, hoped that they'd run out of time, which they did, and, and left them with a long long kick. And uh, they were able to they they made he made the kick. Milo made a nice kick. Uh, in a situation you know you give him give him that chance ten times he he may not get uh, five of them. So you were playing the odds. I I don't have a problem with the prevent on it, and I certainly don't think you want to give uh, start pressuring guys at that point when. When Trevor Harris has uh, only thrown two incompletions up to that point in the game, he was hotter to pistol. He was at 89.5% completion. So, and and a lot of them were were you know not uh, difficult passes to complete. But he uh, he he had the hot hand. So you just you want to take away anything deep from him and uh, force him to throw underneath, and hopefully your troops can rally. Well, and and the Eskimos had some issues, obviously, in in the secondary. It didn't help when Watkins went out, and then Gary Peters came in and and uh, got a little bit, but fuddled in overtime. So uh, that secondary was the number one focus or the or number one question as a possible weakness going in. And in my mind, Blake, they they didn't do much to to make people feel a little better about it. Well, you know, there's a couple of things, and and you know, first of all, I want to go back and say that the Mike Riley not running on that last play wasn't the reason why they lost. Well, it, no, of course not. It no. contributed to the, to the loss. That wasn't the reason, and uh, and I think that the uh, uh, the the defensive backs, the the newness to the defensive back, uh, how many players are are uh, you know, I guess weren't there last year. I don't know if that contributed. If that was the reason why they lost, I, I thought that the. The, the Eskimos um, didn't get the pressure that they wanted to get all game. They had two sacks. Uh, I mean, the, the quarterbacks were completing the ball, as I mentioned. You know, they were at 80% for, uh, for Ottawa. They, those, those guys were throwing the ball very well. What we found out, too, because I think that's a pretty good front the Eskimos have, the front four and, and whoever you want to interchange in there, and that linebacking crew I thought was pretty good. Um, but that front, uh, the offensive line, that, that group that Ottawa has in front of the quarterbacks, protected them very well and uh, gave them the time. I mean, when you've got good quarterbacks, if they've got somebody in their face, you know, they, they, they're not going to have the numbers, the gaudy numbers that they did have, but they, but that good group of offensive linemen against a very good front from the Eskimos uh, protected them well enough to have them throw for 80%. Yeah, well, and you know what? I, I, I mean, one game. I, I didn't think Ottawa was going to look as. Sh- I thought last year they were a good team that took advantage of some injuries in their division to get to the Grey Cup. And credit to them, you can only play the competition in front of you. But they look like they can be a, a dangerous team again this year. Look, you're. I, I think I know how you're going to answer this. You're going to be like Wilkins, settle down. But you know, Blake. Sometimes I worry, right? Sometimes I worry uh, about the green and gold. Um, I thought, you know, they were in tons of close games last year, and they pulled almost all of them out, literally all of them in the second half of the season. They found themselves in that situation again yesterday. It didn't go their way, and I and I just, I just worry they're going to flirt with this again, and they're going to be a slow-starting offense again, 
and then maybe you know those breaks or those close things at the end of the games go away. I, I know it's a new season, and, you, and you're going to say it's a new identity, but I saw, again, I saw an offense that didn't do much for a quarter and a half, and they almost got the dramatic win, but this time they weren't the team that, that pulled it out. Okay, well, <clears throat> there's a couple things that, that I would say that maybe uh, um, maybe stop you from panicking. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, for last year, the Eskimos, where it came into the season with very high hopes and came up against a team with, from Toronto, if I remember right, they had 24 guys that had never even played or were playing their first game in the CFL and against a quarterback named Trevor Harris, who'd been in the league for four years, but had had like two starts. And he absolutely torched that team in, uh, in, in Fort McMurray. And uh, everybody was, oh, what was be And then they lose the, the quarterback. I thought the Eskimos, if you look at oh, statistically, and you look at Mike Riley's performance at 383 yards passing, that would have been, I think, the best passing game he had all of last season. They were, yeah, they had a little bit of a slow start, but keep in mind, too, the defensive coordinator over in Ottawa um, uh, coached with the offensive coordinator in Edmonton. Nelson, you would yeah. think that he would have a pretty good idea of what kind of book that the the uh, the offensive coordinator is going to run with with Jason Moss, and and you know and then you got a really good defensive coordinator on the Eskimos and, and Benavides, and you got you got guys and he worked with I believe the the, the uh, offensive coordinator now with Ottawa, so you got guys that know each other very well. There was a whole lot of just jabbing and and you know bouncing around the ring trying to feel each other out in that first half when you saw that the. What was the score? 14-11, the uh, uh, 230 yards to 208 yards of offense for both teams. Everybody thought this was going to be just a, a real dull game. But then those, those, uh, the good offensive coordinators, the good defensive coordinators, I think the defensive coordinators lost in the second half to the offensive coordinators from each team because they, they figured them out and they, they put up some pretty good numbers. And, uh, um, and that's something that we never saw from this offense last year. I think the defense is going to figure it out. I think they're going to be able to find the right personnel. They do have a new guy, slightly different system. It's going to take them a little bit longer. The defense was was ahead of offense last year because they were virtually the same group with the uh, with their coach for, from the previous season. And uh, this year, it's a it's a whole new coaching staff. And and Jason Moss has said this over and over again that the system that they're running on offense is very similar. And so. Uh, Mike Riley, uh, you know, he's had a couple of years in this system, so he's picked it up really well. So I'm not surprised to see him have the numbers that he did and, and the performance that he did through for 73% or 70% passing. I mean, that's, that's really good numbers as well. Um, and I thought the offensive line did a nice job protecting. They had, they'd only given up a couple of sacks. Uh, there's a couple of things, though. Early in the season, you'll see penalties. Penalties hurt drives. Penalties cost some drives. And penalties cost some points. And uh, when you when you look at the score at the end of the game, and you, and you, you you're you're one second or a couple seconds away from winning it, a kind of 55 yard field goal, those penalties come back and haunt you because that would have meant that they weren't even in that position to kick that field goal. All right, well, well you did I'm calm not me down a little panic bit, Blake. As much as you are. Yeah, you did. You actually did calm me down a little bit. Uh, <laughs> just a, just a little bit though, Blake. Uh, we'll do this again next week, buddy. Thanks so much for your time. Okay. Okay, Reed. Thanks a lot. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.